for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Once upon a century or two ago, Galveston, Texas was a magnet for Gilded Age tycoons and was perhaps the greatest city of significance between New Orleans and San Francisco. The great storm of 1900 hit, and in its aftermath, Galveston began to cede its influence to Houston. Today, Galveston's population doesn't even rank in the top 50 of Texas cities. And while Austinites regard their community as a small town with growing pains, some Galvestonians will tell you that theirs is really a big city disguised as a small town. During the boom years, Galveston was a port for Italian and Sicilian immigrants. In this episode of Gravy, Evan Stern heads to Galveston to meet a few of the folks whose forebearers landed at the port of Galveston and brought their foodways with them. I'm Sarah Camp Milam. I'm Melissa Hall, and you're listening to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories of the changing American South. Evan Stern pulls in to Galveston. Hard, you know, I'm 92. It's hard for me to remember a lot of this stuff. I'm just getting older and uglier, that's it, so. <laughs> Lawrence Puccetti can be found most days holding court amongst a crowd of workers, barflies, and Astros fans from his corner booth at Sonny's Place. An unfussy wood panel dive at the corner of 19th and Avenue L. It stands as one of Galveston, Texas's most venerable institutions and has been serving the coldest beer on the island since 1944. I really enjoy people and I, only thing I do now is come down here and try to make them laugh. A Korean War veteran, Lawrence was raised upstairs from where we're sitting and started serving from behind the bar in 1951. But despite the years he's put in here, he still answers to the nickname Junior and tells me he's not to be confused with his older brother, for whom his parents named this place. Now, people often ask me if I'm silly. I tell them no, but I'm bright, so. Still, he picked up the reins of ownership following his father's passing and cooked for years after his mother suddenly died in 1967. Those duties now fall on the shoulders of his son Richard, who, after finishing lunch service, exits the kitchen to fill me in on a little history. He tells me where we're standing originally started as a speakeasy, and that his grandfather kept a poultry mark in the front to conceal the drinking and gambling that was going on behind closed doors. Then, in 1944, after hosting a revolving door of tenants, he put in a sign and assumed the role of a full-time saloon keeper. So they, my, my grandfather took over the bar. So people would be drinking or having a good time, and they'd go, uh, wow, sure, I'm hungry. And my grandmother would go upstairs and cook something and bring it down. And it just it, it was, became an endless thing of going upstairs and cooking, going upstairs and cooking, and word just spread. And that's how we got into the bar and restaurant business. Today, the menu is expansive, with bar snacks, fully loaded burgers, and even a chicken fried steak sandwich called the Artery Clogger. But perhaps the biggest clue to this place's roots lands on the second page, where their spaghetti and meat sauce is announced with an exclamation point. 
and my parents are Italian. My father was from uh, Luca, Italy. My mother was from Sicily. And uh, if we didn't have Italian spaghetti of some sort, I'd think I was dead. My mother cooked spaghetti every Sunday. While Junior learned his parents' recipes, the Italian language never took with him. You know, I don't speak Italian because my mother followed two different dialects. They met here in Galveston. Now I learned to cuss in Italian because that's whatever they, only time they spoke Italian in this household was when they was cussing. Junior's parents were among more than four million who left Italy for the United States between the 1880s and 1920s. And while New Orleans proved second only to Ellis Island as a point of arrival for Sicilians, many Italians looked to Texas to pursue opportunities as well. Some came for labor, like the men who built the Texas Mexican Railway. Their diet inspired the stretch between Rosenberg and Victoria to be nicknamed the Macaroni Line. Others came to open businesses, like Palermo-born bootmaker Salvatore Lucchesi. His San Antonio shop eventually made his name synonymous with Western wear. Lucchesi and an estimated 750,000 immigrants from around the world first entered the U.S. through the port of Galveston between 1839 and 1920. This history, local Doran Glenn stresses, is crucial to understanding the city's cultural fabric today. Back at the turn of the century, the port of Galveston was a more important port than the port of Houston. The city of Galveston was more bustling. It was the Wall Street of the South. It was the Ellis Island of the South. But Galveston, people don't quite realize exactly how much immigration and naturalization activity uh, was here on the island because we had so many different groups coming in and deciding and choosing to, to stay here and to settle here, not just to move on from Galveston, because Galveston did offer so many opportunities at the, at the turn of the century. Officially incorporated in 1839, Galveston essentially sits on a sandbar that straddles its namesake bay and the Gulf of Mexico. Thanks to its natural harbor and the business of cotton exports, it quickly became a prosperous cosmopolitan center that enjoyed a trade monopoly as Texas's gateway. And as a growing city in need of goods and services, it also proved a desirable landing place for immigrants seeking work and opportunity. Among those foreign newcomers were Germans, Russian Jews, Greeks, Poles, Czechs, Italians, and Sicilians. That last group in particular, Doran says, had backgrounds that may have prepared them well for life on the Texas coast. If you have come from a place that is surrounded by water, you know the good and the bad. And I think that those from even a century ago that were coming from uh, some seaside uh, or, or portside city, that they would long for something that would at least remind them a little bit of the same type of, of area. While Galveston provided an adoptive home for many immigrants from central and northern Italy, its waters are key to understanding why by the early 20th century, most of its Italian citizenry hailed from the Sicilian provinces of Catania, Palermo, and Agrigento. Skilled in fishing, shrimping, and other seafaring trades, many of these displaced countrymen followed opportunity here 
after first landing and working in Florida and Louisiana, while others, like the parents of native Galvestonian Althropia, followed family here directly. Both of my parents were from Sicily, from a little fishing village called Acicretza. Uh, it's on the east coast of Sicily, with the province of Catania. It was a fishing village, so they went where the fish were at. He would work the port, and he would go shrimping, and basically that's what we, there was a group of Italians that always hung around together, and a lot of them were shrimpers, and then eventually got into the grocery store business. Tropia's was open from 1959 to 1981. They were just one of many Italian corner stores whose presence on Galveston's dense, walkable, grid-patterned streets were ubiquitous. As early as 1906, the city directory listed half of all retail groceries as Italian-owned. And I'll suggest that by his childhood, those numbers had only grown. Alderigi Brothers, uh, Dima's, Mrs. Wilkinson Grocery Store, Micheletti, Minotti's, Niambra's Grocery Stores, Jesse's Food Market. Uh, there were so many corner grocery stores here in Galveston, and they were all run by families. They weren't company stores. Al tells me these places all had their own clientele, and almost all had specialties that made them unique. We had a butcher that would hand cut all the steaks and roasts, and then we had a deli with all the different lunch meats, and, uh, and we called uh, some sopratsada, we would sell some provolone cheese, and we would sell some uh, mortadella and coppicola. And later my mother, would actually, we would buy the actual Sicilian green olives, where she would crack every one of them and put them in a big glass container and spice them up with the olive oil and some other spices, Italian spices that she actually put together. And we would sell those on the counter in the butcher shop too, for people. Our specialty in the butcher shop, where we were very well known for, my father was actually made homemade Italian sausage. One who remembers Tropi as well is Robert Mahoville. A photographer and native of Galveston, he ran many errands there for his parents and remembers their housemaid's sausage in particular. Alfio's father uh, would make it by hand, and they had, and then they had big grinders, and so he would uh, mix the pork and, and the seasoning. And I remember, you know, watching him taste it. I mean, he, he's working with this raw meat, and he's taking little samples to to know what it's going to taste like the finished product, and hand cranking the sausage. And it was so good that really, uh, af after his father passed away, I talked to him many times about. Uh, just going into business just to sell the sausage. He never took me up on it, but uh, I still think it can make it because it was, it was that good. Al continues to make the sausage each Christmas and has shared the secret recipe with his sons and grandkids, but seems happy to keep it as more of a family tradition than moneymaker. Still, he can't help but tell me about the time he surprised his dad by shipping 15 pounds of their sausage to family hero, Formula One race car driver, Mario Andretti. I got a phone call from Mario's secretary. So I spoke with her and she says, I just want to let you know Mario Andretti said that was the best sausage he's ever had in a long time. He wants to talk with you. So I said, great. And so all of a sudden he got on the phone, he goes, hello. And I said, hello, Mr. Andretti, oh, call me Mario. And my dad, of course, he's on a bandsaw cutting pork chops. And uh, I said, wash your hands. I said, you gotta get the telephone. So eventually I had to convince my dad it was Mario Andretti that he was actually talking to. And they stayed on the phone for about 45 minutes talking together. Two months later, 
Mario called back to order 50 pounds of sausage. When we come back, we'll learn that immigrant foodways are still shaping the way Galveston eats. But first... Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey! Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. Galveston's moment of commercial dominance began to fade in 1914. That was the year President Wilson ceremoniously opened Houston Ship Channel, whose inland location proved safer from natural disasters and more convenient to the state's booming oil fields. Today, you also probably won't hear the Sicilian dialect spoken wandering this city's waterfront. But while Galveston cannot claim a little Italy, ties to the old country persist. Both Al and Robert take communion at historic Sacred Heart Church, where each June descendants dress in red and celebrate the feast of Acitrezza's patron saint, San Giovanni. And though Galveston may not boast famed dishes like New Orleans's oysters Mosca, Perhaps the most accessible connection to this town's Italian heritage can be experienced through its restaurants. Guido's has been cooking Parmesan-crusted snappers since 1911, while Mario's is about to enter its sixth decade of serving pastina soup on the seawall. And despite the fact Tropia's is long closed, its memory and those of other stores have been memorialized at the Galveston County Historical Museum and in a book by architectural historian Ellen Beasley. She and photographer Betty Tichich had the foresight to document them in the late 70s. I started interviewing and talking to people, and I thought, you know, this was a part of Galveston that's kind of overlooked, because the emphasis at that time, and this is true of all communities in their preservation programs, especially the start with the big buildings, the important, quote, important buildings associated with the important people. I felt sorry for the little buildings because I just thought they were so wonderful and they really needed some attention. Ellen argues that corner stores anchored their community's streets, provided social gathering places for neighbors, and that while changing circumstances caused them to close, many of their buildings remain. For instance, while Sunny's incarnation as a poultry market may have been short-lived, 
Its exterior tin awning and upstairs apartment remain as architectural witnesses to its past. But if there's one business on the island that provides a spiritual link to these old stores, it's Maceo Spice, where a couple of summers ago I chatted with second-generation owner Ronnie Maceo. You know, this is probably as close as you're going to get to the old days. You know, my part of the family came here in 1903. Uh, we came from Palermo, Sicily to uh, New Orleans. My grandfather got here, I think it was 29, 28 or 29. Ronnie's uncles, Sam and Rose Maceo, famously dominated the island's nightlife well into the 1950s through such hot spots as the Studio Lounge, Turf Athletic Club, and Balinese Room, whose stages hosted performers like Sophie Tucker, Peggy Lee, and Mel Torme. But while the family would eventually enjoy a profitable second act in Vegas, this spice shop is the only business left on the island bearing the Maceo name. Founded by Ronnie's father in 1944, it started as a seafood company that supplied Galveston's restaurants. Yet their spice offerings proved so popular, they ultimately became the business's main focus. The spices was the, the part of the business that was the best part of the business. So we just ran with it. You know? And now, my spices go all over the United States. And we do, we actually got 32 blends that we produce right here on, on this island. Beyond barbecue rub and crab seasonings, shelves are heavy with jars of red sauces, pastas, oils, and lavazza coffee. Best of all, back in the 90s, Ronnie added a fully stocked deli counter, where in addition to meat and cheese, he serves muffaladas, a round sandwich smeared with olive spread, garlic, ham, cheese, and salami. He tells me their recipe for this working man's French Quarter staple was brought with them to Galveston through his father. When my dad was born, 1127 Bourbon Street. What he did was everybody had to go find something to do to bring home something to put on the table at night. As, as my dad says, they used, to make, they used to make them and they would go sell them to the individual little grocery stores. My father contributed the muffalata to a little beer joint that I won in a Boo-Ray game. And uh, we just started making them. We've been making them ever since. Yeah. Sonny's Place has also served muffaladas of their own making now for over 30 years. And while old schoolers quibble over whether or not they should be toasted, Richard offers both classic and grilled options and tells me their house-made olive salad draws on his grandmother's memory. My grandmother used to make olive salad off a tree that was in the backyard. She, was just, she, she had her own olive tree. You know, it, it's, 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 you have to appreciate those, those things and, and, and knowing where they came from. And uh, I think that's what, uh, that's probably the success of this business is because it's like people walk in here and they look around and then it's like they go, this hasn't changed since the last time I was here, you know, which was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Though Richard cites nostalgia for much of Sonny's Place's draw, that's something Ellen Beasley cautions against. Her book documents the years of hard work Galveston's Italian-American store owners put into stocking shelves, managing deliveries, and balancing books. Still, places like these provided an important sense of belonging for the people and neighborhoods they served. As an old family-run business, much of that communal spirit can still be found at Sonny's Place. And the past informs most everything here. It's in their spaghetti. 
It's in Junior's stories. And it's in the hundreds of faded photos covering its walls. One of which is a 1906 family portrait in a hand-carved frame that Richard calls to my attention. The people in that picture, when they had to take, you know, they had their hopes and dreams, come to America. To put it in some kind of perspective, that's before the Wright brothers flew and before the Titanic sank. And, and, to make that, and to make that jump to another country, not knowing what, you know, you hear stories, but you really don't know what it is to when you come over here. If you had to pack up and leave right now and your only choice to go was China, you know, you, you wouldn't be able to read anything. It's like, you know, could you do it? <laughs> I don't know if I could. But Galveston is certainly a richer and tastier place, thanks to those who did. Evan Stern produced and reported this episode. Enjoy his work? Subscribe to and like his podcast, Vanishing Postcards, named one of the best podcasts of 2022 by Digital Trends. We are saddened to report the loss of Ronnie Maceo, who died as this piece was in development. Maceo Spice will continue in the capable hands of his daughter, best friend, and business partner, Conchetta Maceo. Our thoughts are with her and with all who knew and loved Ronnie. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music and Jazar for our donor music. Special thanks for this episode go to fact checker Katie King and editor Olivia Terenzio. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is my co-host, Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter is our publisher. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to listen to more episodes of Gravy, including the story of how Jennifer and Brian Caswell of Houston worked to feed oyster folk in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. While you're there, please consider becoming a member or making a donation. Your dollars fund our good work and help us make more gravy. 